Good to see you all. Uh, my name is Preston. I'm one of the pastors here at St. Peter's Fireside. Uh, it's great to be here with you all today. Welcome. If I don't know you, uh, I'd love to meet you after the service, so come say hi. Um, but it's really great to see a lot of you today. Um, will you begin um, with, by praying with me? Lord Jesus, we come to you today and we thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for the gospel of Luke. And we thank you for Luke and for uh, how he wrote down your story so that we can remember it and live into it and hear uh, the good news of you today. So we pray, God, that you might come now, Holy Spirit, that you will speak to us afresh uh, these words that have been uh, written and recorded and read for thousands of years. Will you come and speak them afresh to us today? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are continuing on in the Gospel of Luke, uh, and we find ourselves today in the middle of Luke chapter 8. It's a very long chapter, uh, and right here in the middle, we have quite a story on our hands, don't we? Uh, it's one that you can read over with, in, with uh, very quickly out of familiarity. If you've heard it, and if, you've, um, if you're familiar with it, you can just glaze right over it, really. Or if you're not familiar with it, if it is new to you, you may be really confused by this story. Jesus telling the winds and the waves what to do? Really? I mean, come on, that is pretty out there. Before we, we're going to look at that, we're going to look at the story, but before we get into the story itself, I just want to pause and uh, zoom out a little bit on chapter 8 and look where Luke has placed it in his, in his uh, gospel. It's important. We're in the thick of Jesus' ministry. He's doing all sorts of things, healing people, preaching, forgiving sins. Last week, if you were here, uh, we heard uh, the first half of chapter 8, where Jesus taught the parable of the sower. In this parable, uh, the sower throws out seed, and it lands on three different types of soil, on the path, the rocky soil, and soil filled with thorns. And if you were here, you may remember that, that Alistair pointed out that in the second half of chapter 8, we're not there yet, but in the second half, Luke tells three stories about people who reflect those three types of soil that Jesus described in the parable. So we'll get there in the coming weeks. Uh, those stories are about a man facing demonic attack, um, those weighed down by trials and suffering, and those drawn and pulled by the temptations of the world. So these, this parable is going to parallel these three stories coming up. And the whole chapter is really about hearing God's word and responding to it. So hearing it and then the importance of doing something with it because you've heard it. The point is, whatever type of soil you might have, uh, find yourself associating with when you read this parable, we can always move in a direction towards Jesus. There's always that chance to move. You can always do some fertilizing or rock removal in your heart. But in between these two blocks of chapter 8, we get Jesus out on the lake with his disciples, what we read today. It's dropped right in the middle of these two sections. And it's sort of a strange placement, but it's no accident because the way Luke tells the story of Jesus always matters. Luke is inviting you and me throughout the gospel into the scene that he creates, that he paints for us. He creates moments as you read 
when you find yourself standing alongside the disciples or the women or the Pharisees or the soldiers and asking with them, who then is Jesus? Who is this guy? I think this story is one of those key moments when Luke lays down his pen or his quill or whatever he was writing with and looks over the pages at you and at me, the listener, and asks, what do you think? Who do you think he is? This is a crazy story. You got to decide. Where do you stand? Jesus is calling for obedience in this chapter. To listen and follow, to listen and follow, and how will we respond to this man? We've heard all about him. This man who forgives a prostitute weeping at his feet. This man who teaches with wit and wisdom that we're still marveling at centuries later. This man, Jesus, who heals and casts out demons, and now, who is this guy? Who even the wind and the waves listen to his, rebu- his rebuke. It's a, it's a double entendre. It has two meanings. The disciples are wondering out loud to themselves, who is this guy? But then also Luke is asking you, who is he? So let's get into chapter 8 now. I invite you to join me, uh, starting in verse 22. If you have a Bible, you can open it up. If you don't, you can take one of these. They're out at the table. You can uh, take it home with you if you, if you need one. So Luke chapter 8, we'll go to verse 22. One day, Jesus got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. We're back at the lake. It's, actually, uh, it's called the Sea of Galilee, but it's actually a lake. Jesus' scenic backyard. It's beautiful. He loves to go there. It's the same spot back in chapter 5 where Jesus sat on a boat and taught the crowds. It's the same spot where he called his disciples from fishing on these seashores. But on this day, Jesus simply says to his fishermen, friends, let's go to the other side of the lake. And so they go out, they get in the boat, they take off, and while they're sailing... Jesus falls asleep, falls asleep. Just pause there and uh, reflect on that for a moment. Jesus was tired, and so he took a nap. If you're feeling tired today, if you're feeling tired this week, Jesus has felt tired too. Sometimes the best thing to do is to take a nap. He's not worried about the crossing. He knows that Peter and James and John and all the others, they're expert fishermen. They've been sailing these waters their whole lives, fishing. He has nothing to worry about, so he naps. But, of course, things take a turn. These longtime fishermen are taken off guard by this wild storm that blows onto the lake. Luke says that the windstorm came on down onto the lake, and their boat was filling with water, and they were in real danger. Let's just pause also there and and know that this is a real situation. So they run to Jesus and they wake him up. Master, master, we are perishing. We're going to die. They're terrified. 
Their boat is filling with water, and the fishermen who have spent, again, their whole lives on this lake, they're absolutely losing it. They're meant to be the experts. They're meant to know how to navigate a boat on these waters. But they are screaming at the top of their lungs, we're going to die. This is not a good situation. Do you know what it's like when you've, have you ever been in a situation when you're with an expert and they're meant to be the one keeping you safe and then they start screaming, we're going to die. It's not a good moment. I've been in one of these situations years ago. I'll tell you about it. I was whitewater rafting, maybe a questionable decision, a stretch of the Nile River in Uganda with my brother and some of our friends. And we were, we were going on this trip. We had a guide. He was a good guide. His name was Big J. That's what he told us his name was. And he was a good guide. We, he had been good. We'd made it through most of the trip. He'd guided us successfully. We'd actually flipped over a couple times, but he'd known what to do, and he'd got us back in the boat, and he'd avoided us getting eaten by crocodiles by this point. So I was feeling pretty confident in Big J. He was doing good. But we're nearing the end, and Big J looks at us, and he says, friends, we have one more rapid coming, and it's called the bad place. I kid you not, the rapid is called the bad place. And Big J says, we should not do it. We should go around the rapid. It's, it's risky. You can get trapped in a whirlpool. I don't recommend it. But of course, a group of young 20-somethings who have not had their prefrontal cortexes developed yet promptly reject Big J's advice and say, no, we're rafting the bad place. Come on. This is going to be awesome. We hit the rapid, and I have a video of this. I'm immediately tossed straight out underwater, sucked, sucked under the river for a long time, long enough where I, I, the time in my life where I thought I was going to die the most, to be honest. I'm not kidding. <laughs> but later, and again, I, on the video, you can see this. Later, I'm told that the raft does get sucked in the whirlpool. It's going around and around, sucked for a long time. But as soon as it does, there's three other novices like me who are still in the raft. And what does Big J do? You can see it in the video. He bails. He jumps out of the back of the raft and swims to the shore safely. He leaves the three people in the raft to fend for themselves. It's wild. It's not a good moment when the person you trust, the expert to keep you alive, bails out of the back of the boat for their own life. And the boat on the Sea of, the, of Galilee, the fishermen wake up their, master, their friend, Jesus, the carpenter, by the way, for help. Master, we're going to die. And I think it's pretty funny. I mean, what do they think Jesus is going to do? Because I don't actually think they expected to happen what actually happened. I don't think that was in their mind. But out of desperation, they wake up the carpenter to see if he has any ideas. I mean, they are the fishermen. But... They have no, nowhere, nowhere else to turn, so they wake him up. Let's look at Jesus' response uh, midway through verse 24. And, and Jesus awoke, Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. And he said to them, where is your faith? Jesus wakes up, looks around, and speaks to the water and the wind. He speaks. And to the disciples' shock, the water and the wind listen. They obey. The wind ceases, the waves still, and there's a calm that falls over the water. 
the, the word Luke uses here, the calm, is specifically talking about stillness on the surface of water, of a body of water. The H2O itself and the changing pressures in the atmosphere that cause wind, they submit to Jesus' rebuke. Do you know that stillness that settles over on a lake after a storm? Picture that. The boat, the boat stops rocking, the waves slowly subside, the wind dies down, it's peaceful. In this moment, no one says a word. How could they? What is there to say? They've just witnessed something again with Jesus. This isn't the first time, but they witnessed something again with Jesus that defies everything they know to be true about what a human being ought to be able to do. Everything you and I know to be true about what a human being ought to be able to do. And they're left with these questions. Who is this? Who is this guy? Our friend, the carpenter, son of Joseph and Mary. We know him, but he's standing in the boat right here beside us. And he just told the wind and the waves what to do. Who is he? It is ever so slowly, ever so slowly dawning on these men who Jesus might be. Later in chapter 9, Peter does finally rightly confess, Jesus, you are the Christ of God, or God's chosen sent one. But in this moment, they can't quite see it yet. The disciples are still the rocky soil from the parable. This is a test, and their roots aren't deep enough yet to act as if God was among them. Although, of course, God was among them. But it's beginning to dawn on, this, dawn on them in this moment. And Jesus asks, where is your faith? The rest of verse 25 says this, And they were afraid. They were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? They were afraid and they marveled. Fear and marveling, wonder and awe. Now, these emotions are often named throughout the Bible and throughout history and even today when people encounter God. Especially in the gospel stories, when people respond to Jesus, to his birth and his healings and his mighty deeds and most certainly his resurrection, awe and fear, fear and wonder. But what, is this, what does this mean? What does this response mean for us? Well, last summer, Lloyd uh, preached a sermon on fear about the uh, Red Sea crossing in the book of Exodus. It's a great sermon. Go listen to it if you weren't there. Uh, and he, he defined fear in a way that I thought was really helpful, so I'm going to use it again today. Um, three types of fear to help us understand what the disciples are, are getting at in this moment. Three types of fear. One, there's scared fear. Scared fear is when you are simply scared. There's an immediate danger or the potential for monsters to be in the closet. Cortisol is released in your brain. Your heart rate elevates. You prepare for fight or flight. You sense imminent danger. You're scared. A friend this week told me that she was nearly hit by a car crossing the street. She was scared. Your heart starts beating fast. A family member is in the hospital with a risky surgery approaching. You feel afraid. It's all you can see. It's scared fear. 
Okay, number two, there's sinful fear. Sinful fear is scared fear directed at God. So it's fear that pushes you away from God, that doesn't trust Him. It's fear that sees God as evil or out to get you. There's no trust in God with this fear. Sinful fear is what Adam and Eve felt in the garden when they went running to hide from God. Sinful fear is what pulls you to stop praying or to withdraw from community or relationships when you, when you are feeling the weight of guilt or you're living in sin. Uh, sinful fear isolates you and makes you alone. And it reflects a view of God, not as the father who's standing on the porch with his arms open, eager, and waiting for you to come to him, but instead as the father who's waiting on the front porch with his arms crossed, waiting for you to come home, a scowl on his face, ready to let you have it when you get there. Sinful fear is a distorted view of God. But there's one more, and three, thank goodness for number three, there is sacred fear. And Lloyd said it so well, I'm going to quote him. There he is. Just have him come up and say it again. But this is what he says. The wonder of sacred fear is this. It's a holy fear. Instead of neglecting God or rejecting him, we learn to exalt him as Savior, as my Savior, as our Savior, to find our smallness wrapped in the bigness of his love now and forever. It's beautiful. Well done, Lloyd. The storm fills the disciples with scared fear. They're terrified. Their hearts are beating fast. And I think even Jesus' calming of the storm sparks some scared fear in them too. But there's a softening and there's a movement towards sacred fear in that moment. One moment, all they can see is the wind blowing and the sails filled with uh, when the waves crashing over the boat and the water pooling at their feet and rising, we're going to die. They're terrified. Then the next moment, calm, quiet, still. And Jesus just standing there looking at them. Where is your faith? Don't you see, guys? Don't you see? You're in a little boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee with God. Do you see, friends? Do you see? You're in an underground theater under Vancouver with God. He's here. And they're speechless. Sacred fear. Ah, oh, the curtains are pulled back, and they just get another glimpse into who their friend Jesus really is. It's scary. I'm sure their hearts were racing. I'm sure they did feel fear, but it's sacred fear. Sacred fear is eventually self-forgetful. When we're overcome with sacred fear and awe, you're not focused on your safety because you are in the presence of something so magnificent and transcendent that all you can do is stand in awe. Oh, my goodness. It's the sort of fear that moves us to worship, moves us out of ourselves, away from ourselves to worship. Because we are so small, because it dawns on, on us that we are so small in the presence of something so big, the bigness of his love, the bigness of God's beauty, the presence of perfect love, love himself. It's slowly dawning 
on the disciples through Luke's gospel. It's slowly dawning on them as the chapters go by. Maybe it's slowly dawning on you today just who this guy is. Jesus did this crazy storm calming for these friends in the boat so that they would get it, so that his friends would get it. He wanted them to get it. He eagerly wanted them to know who he was. He kept saying it. He kept telling them. He kept healing and commanding evil spirits and prophesying over and over. He wanted them to know he was the Son of God. He wanted them to know that he came to them in order to fulfill God's purposes, to seek and save the lost, to give them hope, to put things right again. He wanted them to know. He wanted them to get it. Just notice that in, in Galilee on this day, no one else would have seen this moment. The folks nearby in Cana or in Nazareth, they would have peeked out their windows and thought, huh, storm blew over quick. It's kind of weird. But they wouldn't have known what happened. This moment was for them, his friends. And you might be thinking, well, why didn't Jesus just call everyone in Galilee out for the show? You know, why didn't he round up a crowd and do some other fancy tricks like this? Then everyone would know he was God and would follow him, right? Right? Well, wrong. There were times in his ministry when Jesus was asked to do some fancy tricks to prove himself, but he wouldn't do it. He would not be a magician. And the reason is that Jesus knew miraculous signs in and of themselves do not create followers. They may wow some people for a moment, but they don't create followers, and that's what Jesus is after, followers. People do forget the miraculous and move on. We see it in the Gospels. We see it today. Seeing fancy tricks doesn't create followers. Guilt doesn't create followers either. Scared fear doesn't create followers, or at least good ones. It might create followers for a while, but it doesn't last. Do you know what does create followers? Sacred fear, marveling and awe. Those moments like this moment for Peter and James and John and the others, when you know you're in the presence of the holy and you're very, very small. You're small, but you're in a grand story, a good story, and it's exhilarating because all of a sudden it dawns on you that your life actually matters. And I wonder, I just wonder what Peter and James and John and the others were thinking in this moment, reflecting back on their own story and thinking, oh yeah, this is why we dropped our nets. This is why we quit our day jobs, left our father and started following Jesus because we're standing here shoulder to shoulder with this guy and we want to go wherever he's going. We want to follow him wherever he takes us. We want to be there, too. Sacred fear motivates them, calls them into this. How Jesus stirs our affection for him in these moments of sacred fear, which may seem ordinary to those who are on the shore of the lake. Remember, all those on the shore of the lake, they didn't know what happened. It just looked like an ordinary storm blowing over. But for you, the ones in the boat, for the disciples that day, for you... When you're in that moment, when Jesus draws near to you, you know you are close to God, and Jesus gives that moment to you, sometimes in a group of people, of course, 
beautiful, and sometimes we're alone and this happens. Happened, happened to me the other day, I got to my office, it was early and dark, and I was feeling fuzzy-brained. And when I'm there, have been there a little bit lately, prayer is difficult. It's difficult to kind of get out of the fog and not have any sort of connection. And I sat there and just started reading the first page of the daily office, the first couple lines, and sat in silence. And was just feeling like, I can't get there, Jesus. It's just foggy. But in that moment, I, had this, I just had a sense of Jesus nearby, that he was close, just a calming presence saying, I'm alive, and I'm here. And it was ordinary. It was very ordinary. If anyone walked in, they wouldn't have seen any flashing lights. But it was also profound. Enough for me to be able to say, thank you, God. Thank you. I'll keep following. I know you're alive. You are God. You are here. It's enough for today. And friends, God loves you. God loves me enough to come and show up in a boat and get rained on in his nap to be near his friends. God loves you and me enough to come to earth and get nailed to a cross to save his friends. Do you want to know a God like that? Do you? To follow a God who gives everything for you, who created you out of love, who has died so that you may live Marvel at that with me for a moment. And when it hits you that this is who Jesus is, this is who he is, it's hard not to follow him. Yes, Jesus makes big demands. He asks for your life. He asks for your all to lay down everything and come after him. But in letting go, in letting go of your life, you receive what you could otherwise no ever receive. Friendship with Jesus, friendship with God. You receive a place at his table. You receive life abundant, forgiveness of sins, hope that sustains us beyond the grave, that really sustains us beyond the grave, that really allows us to believe that death isn't the end of the story. Isn't that true? Amen. You receive the gift of knowing God that isn't just to make you feel better about your days, but it's actually the gift of knowing God that will last forever. So who do you believe Jesus is? Who do you believe Jesus is? He's asking you, and he's looking for followers. Do you want to follow him? Will you pray with me?